Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. My name is Jonathan McRae. Coming up on this week's podcast, we're going to be looking at the a failure of modern people to focus and ask whether or not we're losing our ability to maintain any sort of attention span. If you'd like to get in touch with the programme, you can email us, scienceatnewstalk.com. You can find us on Twitter. We're at News Talk Science. We love to hear your comments. And if you subscribe and rate, we really do appreciate that. It does help the podcast get more visibility to a wider audience. Before we get into our main story, uh, let's look back at the week's science news. And joining me in studio is Dr. Susan Kelleher from DCU School of Chemistry and from UCD, Dr. Shane Bergen. You're both very welcome. Our first story is about coral reefs, Susan. Yes, so this is um, the latest report from the United Nations Environmental Programme has stated that around 14% of the world's coral reefs were lost between 2009 and 2018. And that further loss of up to about 90% of um, coral reefs might happen by 2050 unless action is taken. And as we know, this loss is largely due to um, rising temperatures of the sea and climate change. Now, scientists are looking at ways to preserve coral so that they can later re-establish it if they need to in different places. Now, coral is a living thing. I think we often forget that. So researchers need to look at ways to preserve something living without harming it. Um, and the answer, unlike uh, <laughs> unlike Austin Powers, uh, we can do with these small materials um, and these living things. And it's cryopreservation. Okay, so oh. you're using really, really low temperatures. But we, <laughs> we know that this doesn't work with people, but we it does work with small things. And we know that it already works with things like cells. We work with cells in biology labs um, and we, we cool them down to very low temperatures and then we can revive them and use them in research or embryos in medicine, IVF treatment. They can be cooled down and reused. So scientists are trying to do this with coral. They are collecting sperm and eggs from coral and then they are... Um, using these very cold temperatures to cool them down to then be able to revive them. Um, and they're trying to do it also with embryos. However, the, the problem is at the moment, the way that it's done is that this rapid freezing is then, it's very, very um, fast, but then the warming up is extremely slow and it takes a very long time and it uses infrared lasers. So it's very costly and it, it's not very speedy. So researchers... Freeze a lot of coral. No, these are very small samples. But the idea is that they're just you know seeds that'll then be able to you know spur on more coral growth. But um, in the last week or two, environmental scientists in Austria have now teamed up with marine biologists in the Smithsonian Institute and medical researchers in the University of Minnesota to develop a very special mesh. And this mesh that's usually used; these kinds of materials are used in, in sort of cryopreservation of human cells and materials. This mesh is now being used to immobilize embryos to cool them down and then they can warm them up really quickly on a much larger scale so that this is what they see is now the the game changer in coral preservation preservation of these types of embryos and materials it's so weird talking about embryos and eggs yeah Yeah. talking about like a coral a coral like it it just does not 
makes sense to me. Yeah, you but. don't, you don't. I don't think we think about this as a living thing, and of course it is. And the problem as well is you need we need to be able to have banks of these materials because they only um, produce embryos very rarely. You know, it's, it's a very small effect. Like it's, it's not a very common thing. It doesn't happen every week in the ocean. So right. they're very um, limited timeframes within which they can actually go and get embryos from the sea. So actually being able to preserve them and keep them and then kind of develop them in the lab to then use them later to grow more coral and to let them develop and replant. I don't know if it's planting, they're living, but you know what I mean? Yeah. To re, you know, put them back into the oceans when and when they need to or to remove them around or to, to fix damaged areas. Uh, it looks nice. I like the fact that it's also this kind of medicine meets biology meets environmental science. It's, it's a very nice collaborative piece something, of work. Something for everyone. Um, our second story uh, has to do with a special plane. Yes, X-59 from NASA. Cool. X, yeah, it just sounds cool because of the letter X. X means experimental. Um, X-1 was developed in 1947 and was the first plane to break the sound barrier. And X-15 uh, in 1967 set the, uh, the, the speed record for an airplane at Mach 6.7. So it was 6.7 wow. times the speed of sound. Speed of sound in air is, as you know, Jonathan, 343 metres per second. Yes. So really, really quick. So to move almost seven times that is incredible. But we're talking about X-59 and it is NASA's quest to build a quiet supersonic aeroplane. So when Concorde... Why? Because they, they give... Noise is cool. <laughs> well, the Concorde gave off a sonic boom, which had a sound of 105 decibels. So way too loud for a commercial flight to go over land. That's why Concorde was limited to just crossing the, the Atlantic from um, from Paris or London across to New York, briefly to Rio de Janeiro, but it wasn't commercially viable. And so NASA are interested in quiet um, supersonic jets to be honest with you, I don't know why, because these things are going to take a lot of, of energy. They'll probably learn a lot along the way. Ah, That's yeah. what you're always telling me, Shane. Yeah, they probably will and kill Is more this of that the new coral. 2023 Shane? It's the same Shane who just gives out about people building things for the sake of it. I was right about Elon Musk. So. You, you were. You <laughs> I were. was, yeah. So this is designed in a different way. So it, uh, the, the sonic boom comes because the airplane moves faster than the speed of sound. So the sound waves build up like a pressure wave. And they come from the nose of the cone and the tail uh, and the um, the tail of the airplane as well. And when they travel to the ground, uh, they they crash right, and you hear them as a walloping boom. And they can break windows, etc. So um, this airplane is different because of the way it's aerodynamically designed. It looks like a dart, not the train, like a dart that you throw at a dartboard. <laughs> <laughs> to get that flying, you'd be very impressed with NASA, wouldn't you? It certainly would. Dublin to Dunleary in four nanoseconds. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, they reckon it will be 75 decibels. Um, that's just due to the way they're able to shape the airplane and also where they put the engine. So they're, they're able to direct most of the sonic boom up into space, so above the airplane, as opposed to toward the ground. Right. Yeah. But they're not trying to beat a particular speed. Um, this is just to make a quieter... Yes. Right. And and uh, is this for military purposes, have they said? Or well, is it just for... NASA are not military, but I'd imagine that there are similar things going on in the military. It's just they're not going to be in the news. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but yeah. DARPA or the US Air Force <laughs> are probably reading the story going... Eh, yeah, exactly. So 75 decibels scheduled to see test flights this year. So exciting times. That's pretty cool. Um, our third story, um, Susan, has to do with um, this... Uh, Amazing discovery by 
I mean, not a scientist at all. No. Uh, just some random dude uh, was Stop looking getting at... ideas public. He's <laughs> <laughs> looking at stay in your. We box. need our job. <laughs> Don't be after me, job. Um, this is a, a, a Londoner who was looking at cave paintings and figured out something unbelievable. Yeah. So he's a, his name is Ben Bacon, and he's a furniture restorer from, as you said, London. And he became really, really fascinated with all a these... Furniture a furniture restorer. furniture right. restorer. Um, and he became really interested in the markings that were found on these prehistoric drawings, um, quite to the, as he says himself, the annoyance of his family. Um, but what he ended up doing was he spent about seven years looking into this, looking into all these these cave drawings that you could get pictures of and photographs of on, online. And on the pictures, there are series of dots and different lines and he wondered whether or not these lines and dots could mean something interesting. So he spent, as I said, a number of years um, often reviewing academic papers on his commute, on his way to work. Um, He was that into it. He figured out that these dots um, on the drawings corresponded to animal mating seasons. Now these drawings are 20,000 years old on average. To put that into context, the earliest known writing that we, we, you know, people, the scientists really believe is the first um, genuine writing was from Mesopotamia, which is around 3,500. Easy for you to say. Mesopotamia. <laughs> ah, you've Sorry. put me on the spot. Sorry. <laughs> so, um, um, a modern day Iraq. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice <one. laughs> 3,500 years ago. So, um, this was, you know, this predates completely. And and what he's after, they he then had this idea. He reached out to um, researchers and scientists in Durham University and together they, they wrote this paper um, demonstrating that the series of dots correspond to seasons when the animals would be mating. The idea is that hunter-gatherers would need to know when there would be lots of animals around so that, that if they are hunting them they would be able to um, get a, you know have a good rate of kill I suppose or, or bring home something to, for dinner so um, the, the dots were different for fish horses bison and mammals so different animals as we know would have different mating seasons so like they decoded all what, of the this the lunar cycle or something yeah the lunar cycle exactly so the, the um, that's exactly it so the on our lunar month so um, it, it predates sort of any concept of calendars and it really was believed now to be the first time that this was seen in prehistoric pictures so Incredible. it's wonderful I it's mean, amazing it's, 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 so, it's, it's so cool and you, you, if you look at any of these um, ancient cave drawings you can see these little dots and I'm, I'm really mm-hmm. surprised that someone hasn't wondered it more but maybe they have wondered it they just didn't figure it out this I mean, guy maybe was this a, guy had seven years on the bus you know dog, what I mean dog with, dog with if I bone. asked for seven years to look at that I'm, I'm not I don't know if I'd get funding for it you know? <laughs> <laughs> let's be honest but uh, anyway it is he obviously relied on open access and this paper is available on open access so uh, thumbs up there very cool very cool our final story Shane uh, once again has to do with dogs yes the animals with the waggly tail and it turns out that their tails don't really matter um when it comes to them kind of controlling leaps into the air, uh, unlike other animals. Like squirrels. Like squirrels, yes, or cats, uh, things that when they jump, their tail can help change their centre of mass, can change their trajectory. So this was work done in Stuttgart. I was a little bit suspicious by what um, the Institute is called. It's the Institute for Intelligent Systems. And I was like, what do they do? So it turns out they built a mathematical model talk about a physicist's way to understanding how dogs work and it allowed them to check what happens when dogs twist and turn, move their legs around and bound into the air. And they found that the tail makes almost no difference to the dog's trajectory, um, no steer unlike so many other animals. And they reckon that, um, like other research has shown, that the dog's tail is really about communication. So it's it's there to let other dogs and I suppose us know what they're thinking. Uh, and I suppose that makes sense in a way because of how 
we, we see their tails work like cats, obviously, um, and, and squirrels, if you watch them slow motion as they twist and turn, you know, you often see their tails going counterclockwise and they're going clockwise and they're basically readjusting themselves to the environment to land exactly the way they do and, and be so acrobatic. Dogs are crap at that. Humans are better at yeah, it than yeah, dogs, yeah. I'd say. Because if you think about when you fall, sometimes you automatically start spinning your arms and it's it's to it's to have momentum in the other direction to stop you from keeling over. So we do all these things without thinking about it. We move our bodies in weird and wonderful ways uh, it, like uh, just in order for us to, to kind of use forces in a way that we're not even conscious of. But dogs' tails, I think this is cool. So dogs' tails are communication devices. Dominance, friendliness, fear, um, respect, etc. So a stiff tail is threat or anxiety. Let's see, can you get these right, Jonathan? Okay. What's a high tail mean? <laughs> a high tail, uh, mm. curious. Yeah, and willing to play. What about a low tail? Kind of tail scared, between your legs. Uh, yeah, and finally, um, loose and waggly. Playful. Yeah, exactly. See? Yeah. That's a dog owner right there. That's my dog. My dog's Roxy. Your dog loves um, this show. She loves, she's, a, she's one of our biggest dog listeners. Um, all right. Uh, really interesting. Great to have you back in studio. Uh, we'll see you very soon. Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and from DCU School of Chemistry, Dr. Susan Kelleher. Now, we do our very best to um, bring you through the world of science and explain things to you and explore them with you. And to do that, we have to be pretty uh, engaging, at least uh, try to entertain you, because let's be honest, chances are, at least some of you, your minds will wander. And I suppose we shouldn't take too much offence. After all, there is a million and one things to distract you in the modern world. But are we inclined to allow our minds wander more than before? And is our attention being stolen? Well, Johan Harry is the author of Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention. He joins me now. Welcome to the programme, uh, Johan. This is something that, Hi, this is that has really been bothering me for, for some time, particularly in, in a professional setting. I find it really difficult to get motivated to keep doing what I'm doing. Why did you want to write this book? For exactly the same reason that you're having, you know, I noticed that with each year that passed, my ability to focus and pay attention was getting worse. It felt like things that required deep focus that I really love, like reading books, having proper long conversations, watching films, were getting more and more like kind of running up a down escalator. Do you know what I mean? I could still do them, but they're getting harder and harder. And I could see this was happening to huge numbers of people, right? You and me are not alone. The average office worker now focuses on any one task for only three minutes. For every one child who was identified with serious attention problems when I was seven years old, there's now a hundred children who've been identified with that problem. So I wanted to understand why is this happening, particularly because there was a young person in my life who was massively struggling to focus. So I ended up going on this big journey all over the world. I used my training in the social sciences at Cambridge to go on a, a big journey. And I interviewed over 200 of the leading experts on attention and focus from Moscow to Miami to Melbourne to kind of figure out what's, what's happening to us. And what I learned is there's scientific evidence for 12 factors that can make your attention better or can make it worse. Some of them are in our tech, but actually they go to loads of areas, including loads of things I'd never thought about before. Um, but crucially, what that means is people like you and me who are struggling to focus, it's not your fault. It's not my fault. Anyone listening who's got kids, it's not your kid's fault. The book is called Stolen Focus because your attention didn't collapse your attention's been stolen from you. But once we understand these 12 big factors, 
we can begin to get our brains back. So um, with each new invention of, of technology, there's a sort of a moral panic in the same way as with each new mm-hmm. type of music. You know, when jazz came around, when rock and roll and dance music came around, you know, the, there was a big media panic saying this is going to destroy our, our children. And, and I'm wondering, do we know that our focus is actually failing like scientifically, I mean, like you know, the monks yeah. of uh, of thousand years ago, did they struggle to to focus, or or is this a new phenomenon that we absolutely know is happening? So this is a, obviously a topic I explored very deeply. You're totally right. In the past, there have been times when people warned that something was going wrong, and actually it turned out okay. There've also been times in the past, as we all know, when people warned that something was going wrong, and it really was going wrong. If you go back to the early 1970s, there were people warning that actually obesity was going up and up. It was incredibly low by our standards and that it was going to cause a big crisis. People said that was a moral panic. There were people warning that if we kept putting so much carbon into the atmosphere, it would cause a climate crisis. They were told it was a moral panic and they turned out to be right. Unfortunately, I wish this was a moral panic, but unfortunately, if you look at the evidence, I think the evidence is pretty clear this is a very real crisis. This could be one piece of evidence. Obviously, I go through lots in the book. We sleep about 20% less than people did a century ago. Estimates vary, but pretty much most of the experts agree we're sleeping significantly less. Children sleep um, around 50 minutes less than they did in the 1940s. And there's huge evidence that sleep is essential for focus and attention. In fact, the leading expert in the world on sleep, Dr. Charles Seisler at Harvard Medical School, said to me, even if nothing else had changed, except that we sleep so much less, that alone would be causing a huge attention crisis. And there's lots of reasons why. But one of them is, the whole time you're awake, your brain is generating something called metabolic waste. Uh, one scientist called it to me brain cell poop, which helped me to understand it. <laughs> it's building up in your brain the whole time you're awake. And when you go to sleep, something called your cerebral spinal fluid channels open up in your brain and a watery fluid washes through your brain and it takes that brain cell poop out of your head, down into your kidneys and eventually out of your body. Obviously, if you don't sleep enough, and in fact, if you don't get eight hours sleep a night, your brain does not get that opportunity to clean itself and you are literally clogged up. You know that feeling when you feel kind of hungover when you haven't slept properly? That's because your brain is literally clogged up with this metabolic waste. So that's just one of many factors where there's lots of evidence in the short and medium term that if you sleep less, your attention will really suffer. And there's lots of evidence in the longer term that we're sleeping much less. So you put that together and it's reasonable to conclude that we are having an attention crisis due to that. And then there's loads of other factors, I'm happy to talk about lots of them, where we know they've massively increased and we know they harm attention. So you put that together and I think we can make a reasonable conclusion that this kind of general feeling that most of us have that we're having an attention crisis is sadly real. But crucially, we don't need to be pessimistic about that. Once you understand the causes, we can begin to fix them, which is why I actually left the book feeling very optimistic. Well, that's good to hear. Um, but back to this sort of a, the original question there, if... Um if I have no distractions in the room, am I, and I've slept well, am I generally as able to focus as as I might have been 100 years ago? Have there been like, you know, there was, there was IQ tests, you know, administered way mm-hmm. back in the 50s or whatever, um, uh, and probably even before that. Is there a standardized um, attention or focus test that has been administered to people that, that we'd be able to say actually people have gotten worse even without distractions we're worse at focusing or is it is it only because of the things that are looking for our attention 
Well, you can't measure attention without giving someone a task to do. Yeah. Uh, so you can't just measure it in in a kind of void. Um, and what would be great would be if, you know, going back 200 years or 150 years, people had consistently been given the same attention test every year. Unfortunately, no one did that. But it's really important when you're thinking about the example you're giving, I'll give you an example of another one of the causes that I write about in Stolen Focus that are harming our attention. That I think almost everyone listening, this will be playing out for them today. So, I went to MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, to interview one of the leading experts in the world on neuroscience, an amazing man named Professor Earl Miller. And he said to me, look, there's one thing you've got to understand about the human brain more than anything else. You can only consciously think about one or two things at a time. That's it. This is just a fundamental limitation of the human brain. The human brain has not changed significantly for 40,000 years. It's not going to change on any time scale we're going to see. But what's happened is we've fallen for a kind of mass delusion. The average teenager believes they can follow six or seven forms of media at the same time. So what happens is scientists get people into labs, not just teenagers, older people too, and they get them to think they're doing more than one thing, sorry, get them to do more than one thing at a time, think they're doing more than one thing at a time. And then they monitor them. And what they discover is always the same. You can't do more than one thing at a time. What you do is you juggle very rapidly between tasks. Mm. You're like wait, uh, what did Jonathan just ask me? What is this message on WhatsApp? What does it say on the TV over there? What's this message on Facebook? Wait, Jonathan, what did you ask me again? Ah, um, so stressing me out. <laughs> well, it turns out that juggling, there's a kind of technical term for it, which is called the switch cost effect. Um, so when you try and do more than one thing at a time, it turns out you make far more mistakes. You remember much less of what you do you're much less creative. This is a really quite big effect. This is why Professor Miller said to me, we are living at the moment in a perfect storm of cognitive degradation as a result of being constantly interrupted. Now, we all know that that kind of interruption has massively increased, right? Mm. When you and I were university students, uh, the only way someone could interrupt us would be if someone physically handed a note or they pulled the fire alarm, right? Now, everyone sitting in that room is being interrupted, you know, unless they've switched off their phone all the time. So we can see there's been this huge increase in interruptions and the belief that we're multitasking, we're not actually multitasking, we're juggling, which has led to this problem. So for all of these 12 factors that I write about in Stolen Focus, and some of them are really unexpected, like it never occurred to me that the food we eat could be harming our attention. But for all of these factors, there's kind of two levels at which we've got to deal with them, I think. I think of them as defense and offense. There are loads of things we can do to defend ourselves and our children. A lot of my books about our kids uh, from these factors. I'll give you an example of one that relates to multitasking, the thing we just talked about, so-called multitasking. So I've got something, I'm stupid, I'm pointing at it. It's the radio, I know you can't see it. Um, there's, I've got here something called a K-safe. It's a plastic safe. You take off the lid, you put in your phone, you put on the lid, you turn the dial at the top, you push the button and it locks your phone away for anything between five minutes and a whole day, right? I won't sit down to watch a film with my partner unless we both imprison our phones. I won't have my friends around for dinner unless everyone agrees to put their phone in the phone jail. And at first it's really difficult, but I say to people, and it was difficult for me, I say to everyone, think about anything you've ever achieved in your life that you're proud of, whether it's starting a business, being a good parent, learning to play the guitar, whatever it is, that thing that you're proud of required a huge amount of sustained focus and attention. And when your ability to focus and pay attention breaks down, your ability to achieve your goals breaks down, your ability to solve your problems is diminished. You feel worse about yourself because you actually are less competent. But when you start to get your attention back, 
it's a feeling of regaining competence and, and capacity again. So that's an example of, you know, I go through dozens of things like that that we can do as individuals. But I want to be really honest with people because I don't think most books about attention are leveling with people. I am passionately in favour of these individual changes. They will really help you. On their own, they're not going to solve the problem. Because at the moment, it's like someone is like, it's almost like they're pouring itching powder over us all day and then leaning forward and going, uh, you know what, mate, uh, you might want to learn how to meditate, then you wouldn't scratch so much. You want to go, well, I'll learn to meditate, that's very valuable, but you need to stop pouring this itching powder on me, right? So we need to actually together, collectively deal with the source of this problem, which sounds very fancy, but I went to places that are doing it from France to New Zealand, I looked at very practical ways to do it. So I think for all of them, we've got to tackle them at these two different levels. So um, you're, you're talking about technology companies not um, doing everything they can to make, part, you, make you continue to click, swipe, um, well, whatever that, that, that's, that's one part of it. Actually, it's a very big, um, in terms of the collective solutions along with the individual solutions, it's things like how our kids' schools work. If you wanted to design schools that would ruin our kids' attention, you would design the schools we have now. Why, why, why do you say that? So attention evolved to attach to meaning, Right. Everyone listening knows if I gave you a book about something you found interesting, you would find it much easier to read than I give you about than if I gave you a book about a subject that you find really boring, right? But we've restructured our education system, and this, by the way, is not the fault of teachers who sensibly resisted it at every stage. We've restructured our school system around getting kids to memorize completely meaningless facts for pointless exams that measure nothing of any value, right? Now Again, attention evolved to attach to meaning. If you try to get kids to learn things that are meaningless to them, they will really struggle to pay attention to them. Even just think of something as basic as we get our kids to sit down for eight hours a day. No human society has ever done that before. One of the best things you can do for kids to improve their focus is let them go and run around. In Finland, kids, for every hour they're in a classroom, they have, they have at least 20 minutes where they get to run around. They have far lower levels of attention problems than we do. They also don't give them any homework because it's a complete waste of time and all the science shows it doesn't, they don't learn anything from it. So that's one example. Right. Think about um, the way our offices work, profoundly harming our attention, the way the food that we eat. There's a whole array of them, but I think you've gone to the one about tech, which of course is what dominated my thinking about it when I started working on the book. Mm. At first I thought it was going to be a book about technology. Actually, tech ended up being about a third of the book. But I spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley interviewing people who designed key aspects of the world in which we live. And it was it was so interesting, Jonathan, to the first thing you notice is just how guilty they feel about what they've done. You know, that one one of them, uh, a fantastic person called Dr. James Williams, who who worked at the heart of Google, one day he was speaking at a tech conference in Silicon Valley, hugely influential one, where the audience are literally, people listening, they design the stuff your kids are using today. And he said to them, if there's anyone here who wants to live in the world that we're creating, please put up your hand. And nobody put up their hand. Not long afterwards, he quit and became a really important philosopher of attention. But people in Silicon Valley kept explaining to me, and in a way, it seemed so simple, I almost couldn't absorb it. They kept explaining to me, anyone listening now, if you open, please don't, but if you suddenly opened TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, those companies immediately begin to make money out of you in two ways. The first way is really obvious. You see advertising. No one needs me to explain that. Second way is much more important. 
everything you do on these apps is scanned and sorted by their artificial intelligence algorithms to figure out who you are and how you work. So let's say that you've ever indicated on any of these apps that you like, I don't know, Donald Trump, Bette Midler, and you told your mum you just bought some nappies. Okay, it's going to figure out if you like Donald Trump, you're probably right wing. If you like Bette Midler and you're a man, you're probably gay. No disrespect to any straight men who like Bette Midler, I don't believe you. And if you've bought nappies, you've got a baby, right? Now, it's building up that information primarily because it wants to learn what will keep you scrolling for a very simple reason. Every time you or your kids open these apps and begin to scroll, these companies begin to make money. And every time you or your kids close the app, that revenue stream disappears. So all of these algorithms, all of this AI, all of this genius in Silicon Valley, when it's applied to social media, is designed to do one thing and one thing only. It's designed to figure out how to keep you scrolling. Mm. And they are unbelievably good. And I remember when people kept telling me that, thinking, but that's too simplistic. It can't be. And I remember one of them saying to me, you know, are you surprised that the head of KFC, all he cares about is how often did you go to KFC this week and how big was the bucket you bought? Of course not. You know, that's what KFC is about. Mm. Well, these companies, in their current iterations, they don't have to work like this, but in their current iterations, their entire business model is about hacking and invading your attention. And as my friend Tristan Harris said, uh, who, who'd worked at the heart of Google, said when he testified before the Senate, you know, you can try having self-control, but every time you do, there are 10,000 engineers on the other side of the screen who are really smart trying to undermine your self-control. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've touched on a number of factors, but one thing I'm, I'm obsessed about at the moment is food, um, particularly mm. post-Christmas. And uh, just before we go, I wanted to ask you, how does food affect our, our ability to focus? This blew my mind. And as a KFC addict, it was very challenging to me. Um, so there's this whole new movement called nutritional psychiatry that's looking at how the ways we eat affect our brains. And they've discovered loads of things that go through in the book, but I'll give you an example of one. Let's say that you have um, the standard British breakfast, an American breakfast, I'm pretty sure most Irish people eat like this as well. You have, you know, buttered white bread that's been toasted, or you have sugary cereal. What that does is it releases a huge amount of energy really quickly into your brain. It releases a lot of glucose. And you feel great. You're like, whoa, I'm awake. I'm ready for the day. But it's released so much energy so fast that you'll get to your, your desk a couple of hours later or your kid will get to their school desk and you'll have a terrible energy slump. And when your energy slumps in your brain, you get what's called brain fog where you just can't think very clearly until you have another sugary carby snack. The way Dale Pinnock, one of the leading nutritionists in Europe, put it to me is the way we eat puts us on a roller coaster of energy spikes and energy crashes throughout the day that leaves us with these patches of brain fog. Whereas if you have for breakfast, I must admit I struggle with this, but if you have for breakfast, you know, porridge with blueberries, that releases energy much more steadily throughout the day. The diet we currently have, <laughs> Dale said to me, it's like we're putting rocket fuel into a mini. It'll go really fast in five minutes, it'll just stop, right? <laughs> Whereas if you, if you put in the fuel that we evolved to have, Obviously, your, your energy levels in your brain remain much more steady and your attention remains much more steady. And that's mm. one of many ways. There's lots of other things I can talk about, about the ways in which the way we eat are harming our attention. But it was so fascinating to me, Jonathan, because, you know, I went in to writing the book, very pessimistic, thinking, oh, we're we trapped in the matrix. This is a nightmare. <laughs> and actually learning, you know, so many of these things that are affecting our attention 
negatively are very recent changes, right? Yeah. You know, you yeah. and me, we can remember a time before most of these changes, but it requires to deal with this. It requires a shift in psychology. Yeah. We need to stop blaming ourselves. It's not your fault. It's not my fault. There's nothing wrong with your kids. We just start blaming the forces that are doing this. And we definitely need to make individual changes. And I talk about a lot of them in the book. But we also need to start taking on the people who are doing this to us. You know, we yeah. are not medieval peasants begging at the court of King Zuckerberg for a few little crumbs of attention from his table. We are the free citizens of democracies and we own our own minds. Nice. And together we can take them back if we want to. Well, uh as you heard, uh, Johan Harry uh, has gone to extensive research looking at what is the problem with your ability to focus. It's called Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention. Johan, that was brilliant. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, I really enjoyed it, Jonathan. Thanks so much. Cheers. Well, uh, I hope you're still with us after that. Um, I'd love to get your thoughts on it. Do you feel like you are someone who uh, loses focus very easily? Um, I know I really, really struggle with it. Uh, And it it seems to be something that's changed dramatically over the last number of years. But maybe that's just me. That's it from us on Future Proof this week. Thanks to our new producer, uh, Marais O'Sullivan, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt and Hugo Da Silva, who's on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.